Hey guys, how would you like to get all your favorite NBA teams' merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with some amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99, so visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code NYLON at checkout for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all the essentials you need. Also, if you leave us a review on iTunes, you'll be entered into a weekly giveaway to receive a free month from FanEssentials.net. Please note that winners outside the U.S. must pay their own shipping. Thanks, and now on to the show. Episode 7 of Nothing But Nylon, the Nylon Calculus podcast. Uh, joining us today is the godfather of Nylon Calculus, Ian Levy. Welcome, Ian. Uh, thanks a lot for having me on. I'm excited to be making my uh, my first appearance. Yeah, so I, I mentioned I, I called you sort of the godfather of uh, of Nylon Calculus. Do you want to tell people why, why I call you that? Um, I guess I was the first uh, the first steward or shepherd of uh, nylon calculus um i used to run my own blog called hickory high uh, and i was a contributor a bunch of other places and one of them was hardwood paroxysm Uh, i'd been there for a few years and uh matt moore uh was uh uh, running hardwood paroxysm and he uh had signed this deal with fan-sided and they were going to sort of uh, part of that deal was they were going to expand this little mini network for us, the HP basketball network. Um, and the idea was to have these little satellite sites that each sort of uh, hit a different niche. And so uh, one of them was, was going to be a statistics site, a uh, basketball analytics site. And um, I am not a, uh, statistician by trade. I was an elementary school teacher uh, before I sort of went full time uh, in basketball media, but I had done a lot of statistics writing and, and uh, I think was curious and inquisitive and taught myself some and sort of knew how to ask the right questions and find the right kind of people. Um, so Matt asked me if I wanted to, to run that uh, analytics site, uh, which became Nylon Calculus. So I did for about a year um, and then I uh, moved up and, and became the editor for Hardwood Paroxysm, and uh, Seth Partnow uh, took over after that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's you were one of the first people, I think, when I first started writing on my own blog to uh, reach out about sort of expanding my audience, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember that that was, ended up uh, feeling like a very big deal because you, you guys had a uh, bigger readership over at Hickory High, and um, it was a great community and it's sort of, uh, continued on the spirit of it. I know that Hickory high was kind of, uh, was not just a statistical analysis. It, I remember I, what was it? Uh, numerica and esoterica were, were the two, uh, th- things that were sort of the, at, on the masthead at Hickory high. 
Yeah, those were, that was the tagline. And those were the those were the things that sort of got me interested at first. And I'd been a basketball fan for years. And but in in sort of like uh, discovering the basketball blogosphere, the stuff that really appealed to me was the statistics stuff um, and the weird sort of offbeat essays, the kind of stuff you found, um, you know, at Free Darko and at Hardware Paroxysm and things like that. And so that that was sort of what I grabbed gravitated towards. And as I, you know, sort of tried to figure out, you know, how could I be a part of that conversation? Those were, um, those were the places where I felt like I could contribute, you know, I could learn a little bit about the numbers and I could be weird. I didn't, uh, didn't have access. I wasn't going to be in locker rooms or interviewing players, but, uh, I could make weird literary references and I could make, uh, scatter plots and <laughs> color coded bar graphs. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's a, there's a lot you can do. I think that's one of the things that, um, the podcast and also I know has been a theme for nylon calculus has been, you don't have to necessarily have, uh, you know, some crazy algorithm or some, you know, you, you don't have to basically have a, a, a ton uh, of math behind whatever your analysis is to necessarily have something valuable to, to say. And uh, I, I think that's a good segue into sort of some of the stuff that you've, you've written about recently over at the site, they're not necessarily, you know, the biggest deep dives into the, the data, but they're, they're, you have been able to tell an interesting story. Um, and so the, the first one I wanted to talk to you about was uh, DeMar DeRozan, who is, has started off the season uh, completely ridiculously. Uh, I think when you wrote about him, it was even, it, it was even almost more uh, absurd how, how well he was playing. I think he's cooled off slightly, but um you just talk a little bit about uh, what you found when you when you looked at what DeRozan was up to and how he comp- I know you the big uh, the tagline or the headline before <laughs> it was is he the next Michael Jordan and I know that uh, there's a reason you you picked that not necessarily just for clickbait but uh, stylistically what what he was up to. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, the headline obviously was to grab attention and, uh, I thought it would be something that would, uh, set people on fire and hopefully they'd click on the article and read. And, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think I, I tried to be upfront right at the beginning of the article and say, you know, now he's not Michael Jordan, uh, or he's never going to be Michael Jordan uh, in terms of sort of uh, career accomplishments. Uh, I don't think DeRozan's uh, necessarily on a Hall of Fame track. He's not going to win six rings. He's not going to sort of redefine how we think about wing players. He's not going to be a you know a global advertising icon. Um, but I, th- I thought it was interesting because um, you know. 10 years ago, as um, you know, we were just sort of uh, leaving uh, the Jordan era. Um, the the NBA it felt like was consumed with this idea of of Jordan as sort of a playing template and and who is going to be the next Jordan um, and for a long time every sort of athletic wing uh, that came up in the draft and entered the league as a young player they were sort of measured against that template of, of their Jordanness for lack of a better word um, and obviously it means a lot of those things that I was sort of saying DeRozan doesn't have you know it, it means um, you know an engaging personality and are they going to sort of uh, you know draw fans and be captivating and, and, you know, the potential for greatness. Um, but it also was sort of talking about this Jordan style of play, which was, um, very sort of meticulous and controlled. And a lot of it happened, um, 
you know, outside the restricted area and inside the three point arc, you know, as Jordan sort of aged into his prime, uh, there was much less of the, you know, um, athletic dunking and making posters and things like that. And a lot of it was his post game and his mid range game and his footwork and, and floaters and, and everything sort of, you know, around the elbows and in that area. Um, and so I just thought it was interesting because I think, uh, DeRozan, probably better than anybody left in the NBA sort of encapsulates what Jordan's game was when he was at his peak. And it's, you know, some of it is probably that it stands out in sharper contrast because the game has evolved away from that sort of style of play from wing players and everything's behind the three point arc. And, um, and so, uh, you know, DeRozan probably stands out more, but also I thought it was an interesting question to ask while I could sort of g- grab onto this ridiculous hot start that he had had, you know, while, while those numbers were, were there, um, I thought it was especially interesting to look at it then because, um, you know, as I think I explored in the piece, he, he maybe represented the, that Jordanness of, of the mid range game better than any of those other people who are sort of laid against him, like Kobe Bryant or Dwayne Wade, um, I can't remember who else is Allen Iverson, I think was the other one. Um, and so the idea was just looking at their, uh, overall efficiency and then the percentage of the, of points that were scored, uh, inside the three point arc and outside the restricted area. Um, and so DeRozan at that point, this was last week, but uh, his true shooting percentage was 59%, which was, you know, uh, very high compared to, uh, you know, the, uh, the, peak Dwayne Wade and peak Kobe Bryant, peak Allen Iverson seasons. Um, and the percentage of points he was scoring inside the mid range area was like right around, uh, 50%, which is also, you know, absurdly high, uh, and sort of matches up with, um, you know, the, the peak Kobe Dwayne Wade seasons. Um, and so the, the other weird thing is we only really have two seasons of Jordan, uh, of shot data for Jordan 97 and 98. Um, cause that's when the, when the, when that data was first available. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting. He's this extreme, what he had done to that point, he was this extreme outlier. You know, he was shooting as efficiently as, as any of those players ever had. Um, and he was scoring, you know, more in the mid range than any of those players ever had. And obviously it was just a two or three week sample, but that snapshot I thought was, was, uh, was interesting and worth capturing. Yeah, definitely. I thought it was also interesting that you, you made the comparison between DeRozan and, and Dirk Nowitzki in terms of contemporaries because Dirk has been so uh, dominant, I guess, typically in the mid-range. I think uh, probably, you know, if you're talking about who the most dominant uh, mid-range scorers have been since Michael Jordan, I think Dirk has probably got to be number one in that conversation. Um, And so to to see DeRozan's, like, start to the season even above where Dirk has been in, in, like, his... MVP season was was pretty uh pretty interesting, um, but yeah, I, yeah. I think. Go ahead. I was just gonna say when it goes to Dirk, it's one of those fun things. Um, I I picked that out because I I uh, obviously I didn't crunch you know uh, massive amounts of data to sort of find the most uh, Jordan uh, or the most Jordanness in terms of these two qualities, efficiency and mid range scoring. Um, I just looked at these specific players who I had sort of thought of as, as being tabbed as part of that next Jordan. And then I was just sort of racking 
racking my brain trying to think of somebody else who would fit, not necessarily from like a stylistic uh, standpoint, but from a statistical standpoint. So just purely a lot of points in the mid range, really efficient. And Dirk was like the first person I could think of. Um, and yeah, that MVP season, he was a little more efficient than DeRozan had been uh, last week, but, uh, but he was actually, uh, Dirk scored a little bit uh, less points in the mid range area than DeRozan had to that point. Um, but I, I also find that point interesting too, because you can find these comparisons where players are very statistic or very similar stylistically, but different statistically. And you can also find places where the statistics are really similar and they come about in totally different ways. Like nobody would ever watch DeRozan play and make the comparison to Dirk because their mid range scoring, you know, sort of looks totally different, but the end result, this, you know, the statistical comparison, uh, you know, was actually pretty close. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's a, it's definitely the case that like stylistically, when you watch him, DeRozan looks a lot more like uh, Jordan and uh, Kobe. Kobe especially. And I think it's interesting too to to think about these things in terms of like uh, the in some ways like uh, Kobe was Michael Jordan's uh, son <laughs> in terms of like he he played a lot like him. Uh, right down to like his footwork, his moves, a lot of the thing he like emulated a lot of his mannerisms even. And then DeRozan grew up because he grew up watching Jordan and wanting to be like him. And then DeRozan watched Kobe like growing up in the LA area and, you know, then decide like wanted to be like him. And now his game is very uh, similar to Kobe's, although he's, he's uh, even a, a less good uh, three point shooter than even Kobe was. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody thinks Kobe was a great three-point shooter, but uh, statistically, he he really wasn't. I, I think part of that is because Kobe had a, uh, a, a took a great amount of joy in taking the most difficult three-pointers possible. But that's a, a whole side conversation. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, you sort of get these echoes. You know, it's like. Um... I don't think dilution is the right word, but you you get these. Um... I don't know, like a copy of a copy, it sort of gets a little bit fuzzier on, you know, on each, uh, on each version and on each iteration, you know, you, you lose a little bit of the definition, the detail, uh, but you can clearly see how they're sort of all related and that there's, there's definitely a, uh, a stylistic thread, you know, from, um, from, uh, from DeRozan to Kobe to Jordan. And I suppose if I was, um, you know, a little bit older or a little bit more, uh, well steeped in basketball history, you could then continue that to somebody else, maybe David Thompson or, you know, whoever, uh, Jordan's idols were. Yeah. We'd have to, uh, we'd have to get a uh, Curtis Harris or, or the guys from over our over and back podcast to, <laughs> to, to, to come on and tell us who, who the, uh, stylistic air prior to was there for Jordan as that, that template. Uh, in terms of mid-range scoring. Um, all right, well, to to transition to an, another thing you wrote about, it, again, sort of exploring the early trends of the season, um, they're, they're struggling a little bit right now, but uh, the so the Trailblazers are struggling a little bit right now, but Damian Lillard has been playing, uh, you know, very well despite all of that, and y- how, you sort of uh, examined what he's been doing a little bit differently and, and how he's been uh, able to be even more uh, effective. Um, so, so what did you find there? Um, it, it popped out at me. Uh, I actually wasn't specifically looking to write anything about DeRozan. I was just, um, 
you know, occasionally I got free time and I'm just sort of sifting through leaderboards on different statistics, looking, looking for interesting outliers or whatever. And I noticed that Dur- or, uh, Lillard was leading the league in drives per game um, and uh, a fairly big increase over where he was last year, maybe three or four uh, drives per game. Um and at that point, his minutes were roughly the same. So it was, you know, uh, not just sort of a function of, of being on the floor more like he really was driving a lot more. Um, and I uh, did not actually uh, put this into the piece, but I did. I also looked at the relationship between his drives and his pull up jumper. Um, and there was not a significant difference there uh, in terms of sort of the ratio, his decision making, you know, that he was choosing to attack the basket more often than he was choosing to um, that he was choosing to pull up and, and sort of short, short circuit those drives. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that he significantly increased the number of times he was driving per game. And he was also much more efficient uh, this year at that point than he had been um, in years past. Um, and, you know, to start the, the year, he. He, his usage had really uh, ballooned and, um, you know, he was carrying an enormous load for the trailblazers. And I just thought it was interesting to see him attacking the basket more, getting to the line a lot more and finishing really well around the basket. Um, and so I think that was about two weeks ago that I looked and his drives have actually fallen off significantly since I wrote the article. He was at 14 drives per game uh so maybe two weeks ago and he's down to 10.9 per game now so that uh that quantity has definitely fallen off um but the efficiency is still really high he's shooting 54.3 percent on drives uh the only one uh higher than that averaging 10 or more drives per game is james harden uh and drew holiday but holiday's only played two games um and he's uh he's uh drawn a lot of fouls too uh 3.4 free throw attempts per game off drives um which is is pretty healthy um and so yeah i think it's uh, maybe a, a small sort of offensive evolution um and i also thought it was interesting uh, to think about as a function of the growth uh, of CJ McCollum and the addition of Evan Turner, that that there had sort of been some room for him to to uh, play some minutes, a, kind of as a complementary ball handler. That there were maybe a few more possessions per game where somebody else is initiating the action and he's able to attack a defense that's already bent or broken. And and so maybe in those cases, it's more appealing to to drive and sort of uh, drive into that scattered defense and move it a little bit more. Yeah, I was going to say that's like uh, such a a easier uh, way to to be attacking a defense for for guys when they're it's already scrambled and you're sort of attacking a closeout versus you know the situation that Lillard for the most part in his career has seen, which is to you know be dribbling at the top of the key against a completely set defense. Um, th- that to me makes sense that uh, either. One, that he would have more uh, opportunities to drive like that, uh, which, I mean, it seems like he's regressed some in terms of back towards what his numbers have been. But I also wonder um, in terms of like the fact that he's been more effective uh, and that is like uh, sustained over the last, even as the number of drives has sort of dropped off, uh, it makes me wonder if he's they're playing with more space uh, Evan Turner would kind of seem to go against that as as an explanation, but I think they have um, Alan Crabb is in their starting lineup now. No, or am, am I thinking of that wrong? Uh, I think Crabb has been starting, but I'm not positive. I haven't watched uh, I haven't watched them live in a couple of nights. 
Yeah, yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten a chance to catch that much of the the Blazers yet this year, but I remember I think I read somewhere that Crab has been uh starting in place of um No, he's just got one start. Hmm. But they've been mixing it up. Aminu's been out, so Leonard started a couple games, Ed Davis has started a couple games, Vonley started a couple games. Um yeah, Har- Harkless, Harkless is starting at the three, and and Turner's uh, definitely coming off the bench. Then, then my my thought of maybe they have more spacing seems to be out. So maybe Dame's just just uh, turning into Kyrie and finishing uh, difficult baskets. <laughs> <laughs> well, Harkless is shooting really well. He's almost up to forty percent, and um, you know I, I don't know how much spacing Aminu gives you but uh um you know if they're if they're playing uh you know Vonley or Myers Leonard uh in the front court that might uh that might stretch the defense a little more than Aminu you know even though he had a great three-point shooting year last year yeah that's true that's true yeah I think Vonley and Leonard have a little bit more of a track record of actually being threats uh to shoot from from outside um but uh, so yeah, the, the, those two articles I think are, are illustrative of, of kind of a, a style of um, writing about the early season from a sort of numbers perspective that I, I wanted to kind of ask you about because you know b- both of those things uh, were essentially picking out hot streaks in some sense um, in, in terms of you know you're looking at this is a relatively small sample of information and uh you're seeing these these trends um and you're trying to decide uh, you're you're trying to to i guess write about it but how how do you think about that in terms of like knowing that there's a good chance that that they'll fall back to earth to some degree um and writing about it sort of uh descriptively of like this is what happened um and it's really interesting versus like but also this is probably not really sustainable because that, that kind of like takes a lot of the fun out of it, right? Like um, when, you're, when you're talking about a, a trend like that, if you constantly have to be like, but it's not sustainable. Well, I, I, my, pers- my perspective on analytics-driven reporting and basketball stuff I think has changed a lot the longer I've been doing this. Um, like when I first started out um, – the first sort of like analytics work that I was reading was the stuff that Henry Abbott was linking to in true hoop articles. And so it was a lot of like Dave Barry and Wayne Winston stuff. Um, and so the, my sort of introduction was big picture. How do you explain, uh, how do you explain basketball, uh, is sort of like, like, um, yeah, how do you explain the game? How do you explain these component parts? How do you measure player value? Sort of these bigger questions. Um, and the longer I've done this, I, I will freely admit that my skills have, uh, va- uh, you know, quickly been outpaced by you know many many other people. I'm not that technically skilled. Like I said, I don't have a background in statistics. Um, so my ability to sort of like design an all-in-one metric, my ability to answer some of those big questions is really really limited. And even though we have a lot of uh, a lot more data and, and you know the the player tracking and stuff that's available now on, on the NBA site, my ability to sort of work with that on a grand scheme um, is is not remarkable. And so that that kind of work uh, is not in my wheelhouse. I'm not able to to really sort of do that in a meaningful way. Um, but I feel like there is a 
there is still a void, uh, not entirely, but there is still a, let's say, a shortage of people who tell sort of the traditional kinds of basketball stories uh, that you would find in basketball media, but do it with an analytics uh, perspective and sort of a thoughtful, um, you know, not reactionary and and um, kind of a deep understanding of of some of the of the component parts. You know, like obviously there are some people who really do a good job of this. Like Kevin Pelton is fantastic. Um, Five thirty-eight. Uh, I really uh, enjoy their basketball stuff. I think Neil Payne is terrific. Chris Herring was a terrific hire. And honestly, the uh, you know I did some freelance stuff for 538, and my time working with their editors there really sort of brought this out of me, or or helped uh, you know shape some of this understanding and ability. And it's you know uh, Damian Lillard got off to a hot start at the beginning of the year, and that's the kind of thing that basketball media should be covering and writing about. And um, I feel like my responsibility there is if he's off to a good start, whether that's, you know, sustainable or not, my focus is to tell the story of what's happening, you know, in the first two weeks of the season. Um, and, and so my responsibility is to find some data that's meaningful and valid and useful, um, to sort of explain what's happening and why, um, and part of that naturally goes to, uh, you know, what's sustainable and what's not. And I feel like that's um, that's that's almost sort of inherent in the statistics because we have we have those things sort of like baked in, you know, like we have these benchmarks of what's unreasonable, what's absurd, um, you know, what's, what's, what's like a real, I feel like it's much easier to see an outlier performance if you're looking at the statistics than it is to just sort of look at it subjectively. If you're just looking at it subjectively, it's easy to convince yourself, oh, the context of the team has changed. This player has another year of growth. Um, you know, uh, they've got a new coach, therefore what they're doing is sustainable. Whereas, you know, all of those things may be true, but if you look at the statistics and you could say, yeah, well, they've increased their performance by 100 percent. Maybe those other factors can explain 50 percent of the growth. And so they're probably not quite as good as they're looking at at the beginning of the season. And so, um, yeah, I just I think it's interesting for me uh, to to be able to to tell those kinds of stories and sort of offer some some data and some um, some evidence for for why things are happening. Um, I will also admit, yeah, I have plenty plenty of shortcomings as a basketball mind. And, uh, I'm not, I'm also not great with sort of X's and O's stuff. You know, I'm far behind uh, the people who, you know, Scott Rafferty, who does his excellent video breakdowns for us at the step back, you know, that a lot of that is above my skill level and understanding too. Um, and so what I can bring to offer is, you know, sort of an understanding of, of, uh, the relationship between usage and efficiency and, um, you know, an understanding of shot selection, uh, and sort of how that plays out statistically statistically, um, you know, and, and how the four factors work and things like that. So, so that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to reinvent basketball. I'm not trying to design a model to tell you who the best player in the league is. I, you know, I'm going to tell you the stories that you're going to read about everywhere else, but I'm going to, you know, hopefully offer a little bit of, of context and help you un, uh, understand what's going on in a slightly different way. Yeah. I think that's a, a great way to sort of frame it because, you know, the, Anybody looking at Damian Lillard's uh, just general box score statistics would see, oh, he's scoring more, or he's he's gotten off to this hot start, and um, 
you know, but looking at just at his box score numbers isn't going to really tell you a lot about how exactly that he's gotten off to that hot start. Same thing with DeMar DeRozan. Like, if uh, you just looked at DeMar DeRozan, the fact that he was scoring, like, 30 points a night for, like, you know, nine games or ten games in a row, however many it was, and you you might think, oh, wow, like, maybe he added a three-point shot or maybe he is uh, getting to the line a lot and, you know, he's he's changed his game a little bit that way which th- those two things would be, you know, you you might be skeptical that he he's actually added a three-point shot, but because he's never really had it, but you might the the fact that you can specifically point to, oh no, he's just sh- shooting the same shots he's always shot, you know, these contested mid-range jumpers, but he's just hitting them at an absurd rate. Um and like that's that's great and uh it's really kind of cool to watch uh to see somebody completely in the zone like that but it's also i think important to know for going forward what to expect of him um and also just to understand like how is this happening how is demar derozan all of a sudden the best scorer in the league when he's not really been that i mean he's been a good scorer but like from an efficiency perspective and, and all of that sort of thing, when you pair, uh, like you were talking about uh, usage and efficiency, he, he's just been always been kind of like, okay, because his efficiency was never that great. And he was all volume basically. Um, so yeah, I think those are, I, I you know, you shouted out a few people. I, I would say one of the people that I think does a really great job aside from all those that you mentioned, which I, I agree with. Um, another person that does a good job of this is, uh, Zach Lowe. Like he, obviously Zach is one of the best, it, like just in general at what he does, but he, I always appreciate the fact that he's able to, um, use the numbers and like, he'll just drop it in a footnote or something, you know, he'll be telling the story like, of what's happening on the floor. And then he'll say, Oh, by the way, like here's the, the citation for the numbers that, <laughs> that back up what I'm saying. And you can trust me that it's, uh, you know, that this is valid. And it's like a, a thing that's happening at a grander scale than just like this one play that I'm breaking down or whatever. Um, so, so I think those things are really good. Yeah. I think that's one of the wonderful things about, about, uh, Zach is that he, he understands these statistics, uh, but doesn't, um, he doesn't need to build the story around them. Like you'll often see, um, I don't know, like, like he can make a point without citing the specific statistic, but you know that he understands uh, that, you know, that he's looked up the statistics, whatever, like, you know, uh, that's Damian Lillard, like he's driving much more and he's scoring much more effectively off drives. You know that when Zach makes that statement, it's not just based on, well, I watched the last two Blazers games and he drove a bunch and scored a bunch on his drives. Like, you know, he's actually looked at that statistic and, you know, he understands um, how that fits into all of these other parts, the relationship between drives and the team's ability to, you know, create open corner threes or whatever it is. Like he he understands sort of that that spider web of things. Um, and so that you can trust when he's talking about those points that he's, uh, he's pulled on all the strands of that spider web to make sure they're all connected in the way he thinks, you know, before they go in. Um, but he doesn't have to, uh, he doesn't have to build you a scatter plot, uh, you know, to, to show it off. (laughs) Um, you know, he's, uh, his understanding of basketball is deep enough that, you know, he keeps you, he keeps you entertained with all, with all of these other, you know, insider tidbits and, you know, this understanding of how the offense is supposed to run and what the sets are supposed to look like and things like that. And, um, 
So he can sort of uh, he he keeps the story moving in in every way. But but you know that 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 statistical framework and that understanding is is uh, you know is is part of the structure of what he's writing and what he's working on. Yeah, yeah, we should all we should all basically aspire to be as good as Zach. <laughs> as Zach. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I think that the, though they're like you know to, to from a storytelling perspective, I think you know under, putting things in context is is something that I've always thought that you did a good job of, and um, I think it's something that uh, you know I, I I don't want to necessarily like obviously we've got a lot of writers at the site that do use scatter plots or or do like you know, put tableaus in, in our, their things. And I, I think that those things are tremendously valuable, um, especially for s- telling certain kinds of stories. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's interesting just to see the different ways that people attack it, um, from, from a storytelling perspective and how people think about, about those sorts of things. Yeah, it's about methodology and it's about the audience. You know, like Zach's uh, Zach's audience at ESPN is a little more general than than other places, and so you know, to cater to that audience, he's a little bit lighter on statistics than you know the guys at Five Thirty Eight are. And and even at Five Thirty Eight, I would say their audience is probably still geared a little bit more towards the story than ours is at Nylon. Calculus. So, you know, by the time you filter down to us and Nylon Calculus, we have a little more of the model. You know, we're showing our work a little bit more um, than you find in other places uh, because our readers are. Um, you know, our readers are the niche who's a little bit more interested in, in some of those harder details uh, because they want to be involved. They're, you know, a lot of our readers are, are making their own models and working on their own things. And so they, you know, they want that uh, they, they want those that those level of details um, and, and uh, you know, that maybe readers in other places aren't, aren't necessarily interested in. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the great things about about having having a niche. I think it's um, one of the things that I've sort of thought about nylon uh, since it's sort of debuted and uh, as it's kind of grown is, is it, rem- it seems a lot to me like the place that is, um, and this, it makes me a little bit sad that, that it seems to have completely replaced it and isn't as much supplementary, but it seems to have replaced a lot of the, the conversations that used to happen, um, in the APBR metrics, uh, forum, which was a place that I used to go to a lot and really enjoyed and learned a lot about basketball statistics from. And that's, you know, neither, like, it's not to say that, uh, uh, nylon is better or that APBR metrics forum was better. It was, um, it, they, they are obviously very different things, but it just seems like a lot of the kind of work that was done there is now on nylon and is, you know, definitely being shown to a, a bigger audience, which I think is great. Um, but I think that it, it reminds me very much of that in terms of that was where, if you were kind of nerdy about statistics or you wanted to learn more, that was kind of where you went. Um, and so I think that, uh, one of the good things about the forum was that you could ask questions. And I think what I've been trying to do a little bit with the podcast is to ask the questions that I would have asked people if this was on the forum. <laughs> so that like, you know, I, when I was a curious uh, kid, basically asking all these questions of these people that have built models or had been thinking about these things uh, for a lot longer than I had. Um, I think that being able to ask those same kinds of questions of the people that are writing on our site is, is a good uh, a good place to be um just because a lot of the stuff you know a lot of the articles that get written sometimes the methodology is over my head and i have to so i, have, I need to ask <laughs> yeah i mean and that's where i am too i mean i uh we have 
plenty of people doing work at nylon calculus that is is above my head uh in terms of concept and statistics and and all that sort of stuff um and i i too spent a lot of time in the forum uh back in the day and it was a tremendous resource for me uh, i think some of the um I don't know if this is for better or worse, but I think uh, if there is a um, maybe one of the reasons that some of that conversation has gravitated to nylon calculus, it, it, you know, as much as that is true, is that I think like back in the day when I first got involved uh, on the forum and, and was, you know, asking questions and commenting and reading stuff there, it was not clear that that this was a viable career option for people that you could be smart about basketball statistics and someday you could work for a team. You know, there were a handful of guys who had, had moved, um, you know, from the forum and from sort of doing this work on their own into working for teams, Aaron Barzilai and, you know, Dean Oliver and, and, um, you know, and there was there was plenty of examples, but it was not sort of so obvious. Um, and I think that has changed a lot. That a lot more of the people who are doing this uh, sort of work are not doing it purely to satisfy curiosity. They are doing it for um, for hopefully turning it into a career. And so I know. Um, you know, this, this is part of nylon calculus and we certainly welcome it is that people come to nylon calculus for the platform and that, um, you know, writing an article for nylon calculus maybe gets you to a wider audience than posting something in the APBR forum and the people for whom that matters, uh, it matters a lot because they're they're pursuing a career and they want to get their name out there and they want, you know, people from teams to know who they are and, um, they want name recognition when they're glad handing at the Sloan conference and, you know, <laughs> handing out business cards. And so, um, you know, that's, that's part of it. I don't know that it's, uh, I don't know that it's bad necessarily, but there is, um, I know for me, there is, there is maybe a, a twinge of regret that the, that this all maybe was a little more pure back in the day when it was about, <laughs> uh, when it was just sort of about figuring it out, you know, when it was about, when it was just a, it was just a puzzle that sort of needed to be solved that your brain wouldn't let go of. Um, and I think that's a lot of the, you know, a lot of the giants in the industry, that was how they started was, um, it was just pure curiosity that, uh, you know, an, an intellectual itch that they just couldn't, <laughs> they just couldn't scratch. They just couldn't get rid of. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know. I don't know. There, there's something about that that's appealing. Maybe it's abstract and not real and, and whatever. But uh, it, there is something to that. We, we might just be a couple of, of old men basically talking about, <laughs> uh, talking about how, how it used to be so punk rock and now, and now it's not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know necessarily. Like, I think that there are definitely people that want to do it as a career but i don't i don't necessarily know that they're any less curious you know like i think it's if you wanted to do this as a career like that me that probably means that you're pretty curious about uh all the sorts of things that like you probably would have been a you know somebody that lurked on the the forum um back in the day anyway but yeah that was just one of those things that i the site has definitely um, I still go to the forum every once in a while because, like, I don't know, so every once in a while something interesting will get posted. But uh, Nylon, is, like I said, is definitely uh, kind of um, sw swallowed up the, the sphere uh, of influence, I guess, in, in that part of the 
um, basketball subculture. <laughs> for, for what it's worth, though, you know, the forum is still a fantastic resource. And for anybody who's interested in, in sort of learning more, or getting involved, I would still say go to the forum, sign on, read old threads, read new threads, ask questions there. Um, and I was working on a, a defunct project Um I guess about two years ago now, I was trying to sort of collect some some interviews with people, some original uh, uh, people who worked on the forum and were active in the forum. Um, and a lot of the people I talked to are, are people who now work with teams. Um, and almost everybody I talked to said they're not in the forum every day, but they still – look at the forum. They still check out the forum. Um, and I had a handful of people say that if they were looking to hire somebody new for their staff, that one of the first things they would do is, is sift through people on the forum. So, um, you know, uh, uh, whatever it's lost in vitality and vigor, the, you know, the APBR forum is still there and it's, you know, it's still sort of one of the pillars of, of, uh, basketball analytics. Yeah, I think, um, so one thing I would definitely say is a lot of people, uh, complain about ESPN's real plus minus and how it's a it's a black box. If you go to the forum, you can if you search around, you can uh, find the the origins of ESPN's real plus minus and really get a pretty good sense of what goes into it. Um, so it becomes less of a black box and you can talk a little bit more intelligently about. Uh, where you think it might have blind spots for a specific player, which is important because as our friend Seth Partner will tell anybody that is willing to listen, <laughs> real plus minus is not rankings <laughs> and understanding its limitations and, and it, its strengths is, uh, is very important. And uh, th- that is a, a great resource because uh, Jerry Engelman, who uh, developed real plus minus uh, basically um, iterated through the process of developing it, uh, through posting about it on the forum. And so you, you can definitely see a lot of, uh, how he, he went about building that. And yeah, I, I agree with everything you said in terms of like going back and reading through stuff on there. It's unfortunate. I think some of the, the much older threads, uh, got deleted. The forum was hacked a number of years ago and, kind of messed up a lot of the old posts, but there's still a lot of valuable information there. But uh, that's, that we went on a pretty long tangent, so I'll try to bring us back to something you've written recently. Uh-huh. Uh, so you, you wrote also recently, and this is uh, something that I've been thinking about for a while, and I think it's been kind of on the the minds of a lot of people just because of his age, but uh, the relative health of LeBron James, uh, given his workload, is something um, that a lot of us feel like maybe we've never seen before. And so you kind of dug into some of those numbers to to look at, is was LeBron the healthiest star ever? So, so what did you pull out of there? Um. So I'll preface that one again by saying that was uh, a, a inflammatory headline uh, <laughs> for the sake of, of hopefully getting people in there and getting them to read the piece. Um, and uh, yeah, that was that was something I, I can't remember what the the genesis, what the initial genesis of the idea was, but that was something that we kicked around in the nylon calculus email thread at some point this summer was a question that came up. Um, and pretty quickly the, uh, the answer is obviously, um, you know, if you're talking about who's the healthiest star, uh, you know, in the history of the NBA, you're probably going to end up with, with, um, Carl Malone or John Stockton is the answer. Uh, but there was something interesting about LeBron that I was sort of trying to explore in this article is, um, 
you know, obviously we don't have a measurement of health, so we can measure games played. That's sort of the uh, the symptom of health, for lack of a better word. You know, uh, we don't have biometric uh, statistics on these players, but we can measure when they actually played. Um, and by games played through 13 years in his career, LeBron doesn't necessarily stand out. I want to say he's maybe like top 50 in the NBA. I can't remember the exact number. So he's he's up there, but not extreme. He's not at the very top. Um, and even if you filtered it down to like minutes played. Um, you know, I think he was still maybe at, uh, just outside the top 10 or something like that. Um, but there's something about him that sort of, he's been around for 13 years. He's never had sort of like a catastrophic injury. He's never had an injury where he's missed, um, a, a, like a really significant portion of the season. Um, I'm going with the numbers off the top of my head. So I know he's never played 82 games in a regular season, but I also don't think he's ever played less than like 68 maybe or something like that like that. Um, so, you know, he's really healthy. And then there, there's something about the aesthetics of him that he just like, he looks indestructible. Um, you know, it, it's not just that we've never really seen him get really hurt. It's sort of like hard to fathom, like how would he get really hurt? Like we watched him for 13 years um, and he's the size of Carl Malone, but I would say he plays a much more sort of like high wire game than Malone did with that, with that, you know, a similar body, um, you know, jumping and leaping and running. And, you know, he's never, you know, fallen awkwardly and, and torn a ligament or anything like that. I'm knocking on wood. I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> yeah. I <heard> it. <laughs> um, and so what I tried to get at in the piece was that the, this perception of him as one of the, the healthiest players or, you know, putting him in the conversation as one of the healthiest stars it, that it's more about how his game has persisted throughout his career that over 13 years we watched him peak and and his game has not really degraded significantly um so he's uh you know he peaked i think in his 7th year and since then um he's maybe lost uh, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but he had lost maybe like 30% of his value off that peak season where the other top 50 iron men in games played through 13 seasons had lost like 50% of their value. Um, and then the fact that he started from such a higher place than many of them, um, because he is, you know, a star and, you know, one of the handful of best players to ever play in the game that he, you know, he went from the the best player in the league and he's degraded by 30%. And now he's one of the five best players in the league, you know, like his, the, the way his game has aged has been so, um, incremental sort of compared to his place in the league that, that it doesn't feel like he's any different than he was, you know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, so I thought that was what was interesting to me, although I will, uh, will, uh, give credit to Adi Joseph uh, from Sporting News. Um, the the crux of that LeBron piece was I graphed the progression of LeBron's BPM uh, box plus minus over his 13 seasons. Uh, and then compare that to sort of the aging trend for this other top 50 Ironmen. Uh, and so Adi Joseph tweeted at me and he said, graph Carl Malone's and Carl Malone's for, for his first 13 seasons is not a curve. It is a diagonal line pointing upward. Uh, <laughs> it, like, I think, I think Malone's peak was in his 13th or 14th season, which by, by VORP, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, I, qualitative and quantitative statistic as it takes his box plus minus and it includes his uh his um his uh minutes played so yeah uh carl malone peaked first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, 
Sounds AF9. Sounds Carl Malone's peak by Vorp was his 13th season in the league at age 33. Uh, And his, and his second best, his second best season was his 12th season in the league at age 32. Uh, And his 14th season at age uh, 34 uh, was like his fourth best season. So um, like Malone peaked 32, 33, 34. That was the, peak of of malone's career which is just absurd crazy insane Uh, yeah yeah. so all basically all of the points i made for lebron are just as true for malone i just i just happen to not have turned that rock over as i was working on the piece yeah that's that's insane i I think one of the things so i got curious um after reading your piece um because the, the question was such an interesting one and um i was curious about offensive players that carry as like as a a very heavy load because that's obviously one of the defining characteristics of LeBron's game in terms of uh you know he has the ball all the time and he's constantly the focus of attention and he doesn't get to rest basically on offense there's there's no opportunity for him to rest which you know is somewhat reflected in his vorp, but I, I was just interested in using uh, basketball references version of usage, uh, and then pairing that with uh, assist percentage to get kind of like a, a more of a holistic measure of how much of a burden the two player uh, the player had based on those two metrics because the basketball reference version of usage uh is essentially shot attempts um free throw attempts and uh turnovers uh, it doesn't include assists so you're not necessarily getting that playmaking credit so i basically put a cutoff of 25% usage and 25% um assist percentage and then looked at the players with the most games played and the most minutes played um and lebron was at the top of that list so for players that have a a, a very heavy burden he was at the top and i should say by you know looking through the first 13 seasons and it's interesting all the other like the other top people in the top 5 for minutes played are all these little guards so it's like allen iverson isaiah Isaiah Thomas, Stephon Marbury, Tony Parker. So basically all point guards, right? Because who else um, has that high of a usage and that high of an assist percentage? It's generally going to be point guards. Um, And so that was really interesting. Dwayne Wade, um, interestingly, was sixth on the list, which is crazy because of how many injuries Wade has had over his career. But um, he still played a ton. Uh, but LeBron has him by a good 8,000 minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. you know. And the lo- margins on there are really interesting because I have the graph open in front of me. Um, so LeBron's ahead of Iverson by about 1,700 minutes and ahead of uh, Isaiah Thomas, uh, who's number three, by about 3,000 minutes. Like 3,000 minutes is like a whole season. A, f- <laughs> a full season, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a huge gap. Yeah, so so people that are, of people that have really carried that heavy load, nobody has really done it like LeBron. And I think the other thing that even like this look kind of doesn't necessarily get at is that LeBron has had these deep playoff runs every single year um, for essentially his entire career. Um, and so you know, starting when he he uh, I think dragged the uh, the Cavs to the finals, I think that was really 
um, when he had no business doing it in, what was that, 2007? Like, uh, since then, he's basically been in, deep in the playoffs almost every single year, whether it's to the finals or the conference finals or, or what have you. Um, and so I, I think when you combine that, I, I think he probably is the healthiest star ever um, just because who has that big of a workload and is you know playing that deep into the playoffs every single year and just never ever really has an injury and again <laughs> not, knock on wood that that we don't jinx him because um, I enjoy enjoy watching LeBron play and don't want to see him uh, I really I think it would be a, a real shame if we didn't get the the final uh match up in the trilogy of Warriors versus versus Cavs. I think I, I was a little bit dismayed at how inevitable the season uh, seemed at the start of it, but um, mm -hmm. I think that I've come around to, to being like, all right, you know, if it, if it gets down to those two teams at the end, I think I'll still enjoy it just because there's been so much back and forth between them and there seems to be uh, some real um, heat be between the two teams now. So that, that always makes for an enjoyable series. Yeah, I think we're, the regular season is going to be fantastic. I mean, it's been great so far. Uh, and I think, yeah, like you were saying, even if the end result is Warriors-Cavs again, it seems like the playoffs are set up to be fantastic. I mean, the Clippers are so have been so good this year. Well, apparently, uh, Chris know. Paul can, apparently Chris Paul can see now, which which, <laughs> which has turned him into a into a freaking superhero because he was arguably the best point guard ever, or maybe second best behind Magic uh, before, and and he that he was doing that without really being able to see. And <laughs> I that just that that whole storyline kills me um i had a friend in college who got lasik surgery um, and i went to see him uh I don't know, a day or two after he'd gotten the surgery and he lived uh you know in those crusty old college houses with a bunch of different apartments and he lived on the top floor uh facing the street and so i went up into his apartment and he was sitting on his bed uh staring up out the window and I came in, I was like, Hey man, what's going on? Nothing. I was like, what are you doing? Cause he was just like staring out the window like a zombie. And he turned around and he was like, I'm watching TV in the house across the street. He's like, this is crazy. He's like, I can see like an Eagle. <laughs> it's like he had, you know, however long he lived, he was like, I had no idea that like eyes could do this. Uh, so yeah, here's hoping that's what it was for Paul and his season's been incredible if he keeps this up and, and this leads to you know a seven game uh warriors uh clippers series that would be fantastic and throw the spurs in there you know either them matched up with the clippers or them matched up with the warriors that's going to be fantastic and the east looks so much uh deeper this year you know if it was um you know the, in the summer it sort of looked like it was Cavs, and then you know maybe celtics and Raptors sort of on that second tier, but you know, the Hornets have been so fun to watch. They've been so good. You know, the Hawks, uh, uh, much better than I was expecting. I thought maybe they wouldn't even be a playoff team this year. And, Same. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I did not expect this. I, I well, like, I have been a, a pretty big from when he came in the league. I, I thought that, uh, Dennis Schroeder would, would or Schroeder would have a pretty good career, but like I was starting to have my doubts and not really see it, especially him being sort of the starter. Um, and then there was the whole downgrade from Dwight to I mean from Horford to Dwight, and um, you know I, I just assumed that that was for sure a downgrade. But um, Dwight has has been fitting very well in his role, and the one thing that 
Horford was always very poor at was rebounding, and uh, that's one of Dwight's strengths. So he he actually um, they completely are changing how they play a little bit. I think. Yeah, they're they're going to be yeah. However it shakes out, whatever the matchups are, I feel like we're already staring down a bunch of really good playoff series, you know, both in the first round and, and moving on from there. So, um, yeah, e- even if the end result is, is sort of that, that both of the favorites in advance and we get warriors and Cavaliers, that's got enough drama baked in. And uh, I certainly don't think it's going to be boring getting there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that the, the rise of the Clippers is, has been, um, definitely a good antidote to this sort of inevitability that seemed to be there with the Warriors, especially with the Warriors um, not really having to face the Clippers last year um, because of Chris Paul getting injured and uh, then Blake getting injured immediately thereafter. That that was that was such a bummer last year because um, you know you, I think everybody was looking forward to that series. I know I was, and uh, you know the then they just had to play the the Blazers and uh, you know the Blazers kept it interesting because I think Steph was more hurt then than he ended up being down the stretch, but. Yeah, the, uh, that series, I, I really, really, really hope, uh, again, speaking of knocking on wood, that we get everybody healthy for, for that series this year because the problems that the that the Clippers can present for the Warriors I think are very interesting because, uh, specifically because of DeAndre Jordan, um, they don't have anybody down low that can really handle him, and I'm including Draymond Green in that because I don't, you know, I don't know what you do if you're Draymond if there's going to be a lob and DeAndre is about to dunk on your head. Like, it's that's a different thing than guarding the post, which Draymond is very good at. But DeAndre is not down there posting up. You know, like he's not trying to do Dwight Howard <laughs> like post ups on the block. He's just all right. I'm going to set a nasty screen and then roll super hard to the rim and dunk on your head. Um, and I don't really know how you stop that if you're uh, six foot seven. Yeah, they're going to be a fascinating series. Um, the the way, uh, assuming we get there, the way it's sh- um, shaping up, you know, the Clippers all of a sudden their bench is good, uh, and they're flush with wing defenders um, all of a sudden, and uh, seems like that they're sort of lining up to have uh, have their strengths and weaknesses sort of uh, make this little puzzle picture uh, with the Warriors. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be fun. Yeah, I, I can't wait. I got this. Uh, this conversation has got me uh, more excited for <laughs> for for the season. I think than I than I have been, which is um, which is good. Uh, but anyways, I, it's been about a, about an hour, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But um, do you have anything else that's sort of uh, percolating that, that that people should be expecting on the site anytime soon? Uh, I don't have anything else uh, nylon calculusy uh, percolating, um, but uh, I would I would uh, love to have everybody uh, come and check out the step back. Um, the step back is the new sort of umbrella vertical uh, that we're on at uh, at fansided um, So whatever you're into, we've got at the step back um there's video breakdowns uh today uh you know a feature interview with jordan crawford who's fighting his way back into the nba a piece about the celtics um 
sets that they run uh, out of bounds plays um, piece about uh, Anthony Randolph finding his niche in Europe. Um, so we've got, uh, you know, the, the, we've still got that numerica and esoterica stuff down. And, and uh, so all, all that nylon calculus uh, content now lives uh, at fansided.com at the step back. So um, yeah, whatever you're into, uh, we're going to, we're going to try and cover it for you. And uh, yeah, we're, we're uh, appreciate the readers so far and looking forward to making uh, more of you into regular readers as well. Yeah. Just to echo what Ian said, no matter what kind of uh, basketball nerd you might be, the, the, <laughs> the step back has you covered. <laughs> so That's it's planned. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's, you know, you're kind of one-stop shop for anything basketball or NBA related specifically. Um, but uh, yeah, Ian, thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure we'll have you on again uh, sometime later in the season. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. It was fun. All right. Have a good night, man.